Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 26 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 108 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended December 8th, 2018. Welcome. This week started off so slowly, tranquility in our country around the solemn occasion of the funeral of George H.W. Bush. As the week started, I thought to myself, wow, this is going to be an uncharacteristically slow week in the list. But guess what? We caught up after the funeral. This turned out to be a very tumultuous week with 169 not normal items, one of the longest where there was a juxtapose of this normalcy and tranquility around the funeral with the bombshells of damning information on Trump coming out from the Mueller probe and other investigations. This week was the first time that there were clear implications that Trump may have committed a felony in the Southern District of New York by silencing two women through payments that were he directed through Michael Cohen. We're going to be talking about all that this week. I want to start out with a story that was the last item in this weekly list because it just, to me, speaks to the nature of what we are living in now. And that story, item number 169, is that this week the Trump regime finalized a rollback of a school lunch regulation championed by the former First Lady Michelle Obama. Yes, that's actually happened this week, folks. This is what they're focusing on. This was a program that helped ensure for 99,000 schools that fed 30 million school children that what they ate would be more healthy. This is what the Trump regime is focused on. They put this out for comment in one of the prior lists, and then this week they finalized rolling back this program. And who does that help? I, you know, they cite their usual mumbo jumbo about rolling back regulations, blah, 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 as if this was such an arduous task to put less sodium and sugar into kids' lunches. And so, again, this is under the less regulation and freedom of choices for kids. But let's call this for what it really is. Trump's effort as a racist person to erase the legacy, not only of Barack Obama, but also of Michelle Obama and anything that they have done. It's just a clear signal that he just wants to erase what he felt was an illegitimate president because the color of his skin was not white. And if you look at this week's list, that's a picture that I chose to work with because it tells the story of how uncomfortable it is and how not normal it is at the funeral of George W. Bush that before Trump arrived, and this is the first funeral he's gone to in his time, um, you know, as head of state, but before he arrived, this jovial connection between the Obamas and the Clintons and the Carters, and then he arrives and the whole mood shifts and everyone goes solemn. And he's seated next to, he and and Melania are seated next to a man who he basically ran on. The whole platform that he ran on was that Obama was illegitimate as as a president. And then sitting next to him was Bill Clinton, who he publicly has claimed was sexually assaulted, had sexually assaulted women, brought women to Hillary Clinton's debate that he claimed 
had been assaulted by Bill Clinton. And then Hillary, who he continues to say is, you know, should be in jail and should be investigated and his Department of Justice should investigate. So naturally things are not comfortable. Uh, but that's just the state of, of sort of where our country is now, the meanness with which he's operating, the lack of, of taking things on that are actually for the better of our country. It's, he occupies the space of spite and of self-service and of wanting to control and take over power. But this was an important week, an historical week, when things started to shift. December 7th will not only be remembered as Pearl Harbor Day, it's also, I think, historically going to be a day that we'll remember for what happened Friday of this week in week 108. And we're going to talk about that with papers that were filed relating to Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen. So before we start, I just want to talk about the blue wave, which as votes continue to be counted, um, the tally is now Democrats secured the largest midterm margin in history for House races with 9.6 million votes or 8.5%. The previous record was 8.7 million votes in 1974, months after Watergate. So that's just an interesting, you know, we were unsure election night, just how powerful it was, the people that showed up despite the voter suppression and other steps that were taken that were not normal. But that's just, again, history made in the midterms to put a check on Trump, which is coming one month from now. So when we left last week, Trump had canceled his meeting at the G20, we were told, with Putin. But it came out as we started week 108 that actually Trump and Putin did chat Friday night on the sidelines of the G20. We don't know what was said. Trump had canceled the scheduled formal meeting. Russian media had insisted the two would have an impromptu meeting. And guess what? Russian media once again was right. Um, they tried to play it down. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders defended the informal meeting in a statement saying, quote, as is typical at multilateral events, Trump had a number of informal conversations with world leaders. But we still don't know. On Sunday, uh, also, Axios reported Alan Dershowitz is still advising Jeffrey Epstein about legal issues. We're going to talk about that this week. Dershowitz helped Epstein get a sweetheart plea deal from then U.S. attorney Alexander Acosta, who is now Trump's labor secretary. A bombshell story in the Miami Herald that broke last week revealed that dozens of women alleged Epstein molested and raped them when they were underage. Epstein has ties to Trump, Bill Clinton, Dershowitz, who is advising him and is a frequent pundit on TV, and other powerful men. On Monday, Senator Bill Ben Sass sent three letters to senior Justice Department officials asking them to open investigations into federal officials who handled the Epstein case, calling it an epic miscarriage of justice. All of the women had been silenced there were allegations of underage sex with all these powerful men, and we still don't know what happened. There was a settlement for nothing under Acosta. On Tuesday, Epstein settled a suit filed by lawyer Bradley Edwards, who said Epstein had damaged his reputation. In doing so, he silenced women who were his alleged victims that were expected to testify. So that story is playing out and it should have implications already. We know Acosta will not be named attorney general, but whether he'll remain labor secretary. 
we're going to keep an eye on that story and whether those women do get to tell their story and whether we do find out what men were having sex with underage girls. Now I want to talk about our section, our section called Everyday Racism. The Houston Chronicle reported Peter Sean Brown, 68-year-old, a U.S. citizen born in Philadelphia, was held for deportation to Jamaica by ICE after being processed for a probation violation over testing positive for marijuana. ICE was called in by Monroe County Sheriff Richard Ramsey, who is being sued by the ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center for unlawfully arresting and detaining a U.S. citizen. Here's the glitch. Monroe is one of more than a dozen Florida counties that in January 2018 entered a new arrangement with ICE under which sheriffs are compensated $50 for extending the detention of, quote, criminal aliens. In other words, ratting out people who have brown skin and calling in ICE. A new NAFTA deal signed at the G20 summit watered down protections for LGBTQ individuals, taking away the wording that prevented discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. The Justice Department named Carrie Kupek as a senior spokesperson. Previously, Kupek worked at Alliance Defending Freedom. You've got to love these names they come up with. Everything is freedom and alliance and family. It's an anti-LGBTQ group designated as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. That's our new spokesperson. Uh, For the Justice Department, of all things. Wonderful. On Sunday, the Boston Globe reported police are investigating a man who allegedly pushed over a Hanukkah menorah near Harvard University's campus, then rode away on his bicycle as a possible hate crime. Schindler's List, the epic film about the Holocaust, returned to theaters 25 years after its initial release. Conservative pastor and commentator E.W. Jackson lamented the election of two Muslims, saying, quote, the floor of Congress is now going to look like an Islamic republic, adding, quote, the threat to humanity is Islam, period. This guy is a pastor. Lovely. Rep-elect Ilhan Omar, one of the first two Muslim women elected to serve Congress, responded tweeting, quote, well, sir, the floor of the Congress is going to look like America, and you're going to have to just deal. Power sister. That was great. On Thursday, monthly figures released by the Department of Homeland Security showed the number of people arrested or denied entry along the Mexican border reached a new high in November. U.S. Customs and Border Protection detained a record 25,172 members of family units and 5,283 unaccompanied minors. Together, these make up 60% of the people arrested and detained, which was 62,456. Again, a record up from October where it was 60,772. On Thursday, the New York Times reported Victorina Morales, who served as Trump's housekeeper at his golf club in Bedminster for five years, is ironically an undocumented immigrant, having crossed the U.S. border illegally. Morales, who is Guatemalan, says she was hurt by Trump's equating Latin American migrants with violent criminals. And I have to stop here and say, folks, what a brave woman this person is. 
Many of us are doing work of various kinds, posting on social media. This woman is not only at risk for losing her job, but also now at risk for being deported, for coming forward and telling the truth about what is happening. So we, we really, I want to salute this woman. She also said there are several undocumented immigrants working for Trump's club in Bedminster. Morales said when she was interviewed for the job, she had no legal working documents. When Trump announced his candidacy in 2015, a maintenance worker helped her procure a realistic looking green card. So once again, folks, the rules apply to everybody except for Trump and his family. Eric Trump also has asked for um, to, for variations to our laws to get workers at his uh, winery. So the the laws reply, uh, you know, reply to everybody except for the Trumps. On Thursday, BuzzFeed reported days before. Okay, I I, I need to back up and say. This next story is super important, <laughs> super, super important, because this is one of those things like I thought about at the time and you think to yourself, no, no, it couldn't possibly be. Remember the migrant caravan that started like conveniently right before the midterms um, and people who were experts and advocates went on TV and said, this is really odd that the caravan is coming this time of year because it's very cold. This is atypical. There's a typical migration pattern and this breaks that migration pattern. So people were like scratching their heads and like, hmm, this is really strange. And I just know we're gonna hear more about that story. I just, you know, we just know. This is the first bombshell that in, in this week full of bombshells and every week full of bombshells got little attention, but this is a super important story by Buzzfeed. BuzzFeed reported days before migrants set out for Honduras, an imposter hijacked the Facebook account of Bartolo Fuentes and used it to boost the caravan's numbers. Fuentes is a well-known activist, journalist, and lawyer. The imposter used the phony account to send Facebook messages falsely claiming that established migrant groups were organizing the caravan. Keep an eye on the story, folks. I posted this on Facebook. People were speculating it was a CIA. I happen to think if we find out that there was someone behind this, it either is going to be a Trump pack or Trump himself. But we will see. On Wednesday, the Washington Post reported, according to emails obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, a White House appointee at Veterans Affairs silenced a VA diversity chief in the aftermath of Charlottesville. Diversity Chief Georgia Coffey, who pushed for a forceful condemnation by Trump and a statement from VA leaders when 40% of VA employees are minorities, was told to stand down as part of a White House directive. The Washington Post also reported that Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert Wilkie, in a 1995 speech, praised Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, as a, quote, martyr to the lost cause, what? and, quote, an exceptional man in an exceptional age. This is the head of the VA. 40% employees are minorities. Hello. And some good news. And, and and I do want to say that this week marks a lot of shifts, not only in terms of a potential accountability for Trump, but also our country has just, you know, as bad as it has been and gotten when we talk about everyday racism, people are rising up. 
I mean, people have, I have a, a, a lawn sign that says hate is no home here. People are, are, you know, the good people of America are rising up and saying, you know, these white people that are calling the police on black people every week and all these other things and the neo-Nazi is uprising is not okay. So this was major good news on Friday. Self-professed neo-Nazi James Field Jr. was found guilty of first-degree murder for killing Heather Heyer in Charlottesville during the white supremacist Unite the White rally and counter-protests. Fields will now face a federal trial on hate crimes that carries the possibility of the death penalty. There are more trials and lawsuits to come, including one against Jason Kessler, one of the rally's organizers, and some of the other attendees of the group, including uh, the militia arm of the Proud Boys. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Eamon Bundy quit the militia movement in solidarity solidarity with migrants in a Facebook video this week, saying nationalism is the opposite of patriotism. Thank you, Eamon Bundy, and criticized Trump for demonizing Central American migrants. So that's this week's Everyday Racism, and I just want to celebrate good news when there is some, because I feel like we need that. Now back to Trump. Okay, so, so much happened this week relating to Trump and Russia and Trump and payments to women to silence them and so on and so on. Instead of putting it all together in the list, I kind of broke it up to how it all came out, just so we could take in the gravity of it and take in how it played out during the week. On Monday, in a pair of tweets, Trump lashed out at Michael Cohen, who he said has done in all cap letters, when it's in cap letters, it's really bad, terrible things. And then he said, of course, unrelating to Trump. He talks about himself in the first person, which is also fun. Um, And he said that Cohen has, quote, lied for this outcome and should, quote, serve a full and complete sentence. That's prison sentence, not the lack of Trump being able to write a sentence. Trump also tweeted, Cohen, quote, makes up great stories to get a big cap letters again, cap letters, great, and in cap letters again, already reduced deal for himself, his wife, and father-in-law, who has the money, question mark, off scot-free. And scot-free is spelled capital S-C-O-T-T, one word, second word, F-R-E-E, which led everyone on Twitter to be like, oh, who's scot-free? Does anybody know who scot-free is? <laughs> Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, once again, trolling Trump, reported online searches for the definition of and spelling of scot-free, which is S-C-O-T hyphen F-R-E-E, spiked 3,100% and mused on Twitter, quote, scot-free, spelled correctly, which is completely free of obligation, harm, or penalty, and then scot-free, the way Trump spelled it, some guy probably. Also on Monday morning, Trump tweeted praise of Roger Stone, saying, quote, he will not be forced by a rogue and out-of-control prosecutor to make up lies about Trump. And, quote, nice to know that some people still have guts. So again, the good people like Roger Stone don't snitch on Trump. Michael Cohen, the bad people do. Trump also tweeted, quote, Bob Mueller, and then in parens, who is a much different man than people think. 
and his out-of-control band of angry Democrats. I, I just love the angry Democrats. I, uh, only wants lies, adding, the truth is very bad for their mission. Trump's tweets were widely condemned. George Conway, husband of Kellyanne Conway, tweeted, file under 18 USC, 15 or blah, 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 which is the section of the federal code dealing with obstruction of justice and witnessing tampering. So it's like, thanks for the evidence. We'll file that and send that to Mueller. On Monday, Eric Trump attacked George Conway, tweeting, quote, of all the ugliness in politics, the utter disrespect George Conway shows, adding Kellyanne Conway is a great person and frankly, his actions are horrible. Can imagine how well that went over on Twitter. On Monday, the New York Times reported that in May 2017, Manafort discussed a deal with Ecuador's incoming president to help negotiate a deal to hand over Julian Assange to the U.S. in exchange for a fat commission. Remember that date, May 2017. That was when Trump was already in office and his administration was in office. Okay, so that, remember that because when we get to the pleadings at the end of the week that came out, excuse me, all the filings that this story is going to, to have some consequence. Manafort also pitched himself to a range of governments facing various challenges, including uh, Puerto Rico, Iraqi Kurdistan, and the United Arab Emirates, presenting himself as a liaison to the new Trump regime. Turns out he was. On Monday, a federal judge said the attorney attorneys generals of the District of Columbia and Maryland could move forward with subpoenas for records from Trump's hotels in their emoluments clause lawsuit. So that's proceeding forward. And when I speak at my book events, I talk about all the different ways Trump could go down and sort of there's all these speeding trains and we're not sure which one's going to get there first, but there's progress being made on all these counts this week. So that's the emoluments clause. On Monday, Yahoo News reported Mueller's prosecutors have told defense lawyers in recent weeks that they are, quote, tying up loose ends in their investigations of the probe of Russian interference in the 2000 election. Slight programming note from me, the person who has to list this stuff every week. Hurry up, Robert Mueller. Thank you. Back to our programming. Uh, Mueller's team has told congressional investigators looking to issue new subpoenas for testimony that their investigation has reached a mature stage and they have spoken to almost everyone they want to. On Monday, Roger Stone's attorney said in a letter that he would be invoking the Fifth Amendment protection, declining to share documents and testimony requested by the Senate Judiciary Committee. On Tuesday, and I, I just have to say this ha this took all day. Tuesday, everyone was waiting, like click refresh, refresh, refresh on Twitter and, and Facebook, waiting for this to break. Um, we were waiting for the sentencing memo on Michael Flynn to come out. It finally came out at 8.30 at night, but and, and it was heavily redacted. So mostly it just left us wanting to know and thirsty for information, but here's what we did find out. And this is unusual. Mueller recommended that Michael Flynn serve no prison time. Okay, this, that, just remember that because we're going to talk about some dudes at the end of the week that he did not say the same thing about. But Michael Flynn, no prison time. Mueller cited his substantial assistance with several ongoing investigations. Several, you don't say. Flynn has been cooperating since he was forced out 
as National Security Advisor in February 2017, including 19 interviews providing, quote, firsthand information and turning over documents and communications. The memo noted Flynn's, quote, early cooperation was particularly valuable given his long-term and firsthand insights, and his guilty plea, quote, likely affected the decisions of related firsthand witnesses to be forthcoming. In other words, as one pundit said, Flynn was in the room where it happened, and he has been meeting with Mueller a total of 19 times as Mueller has been interviewing other witnesses and giving him firsthand knowledge in the room of what actually happened versus other testimony that has been given not only to Mueller, but to Congress. The memo also noted Flynn's, quote, record of military and public service distinguish him from every other person who has been charged, adding, quote, on the other hand, senior government leaders should be held to the highest standard. An addendum to the memo identified three matters in which Flynn is cooperating. One was collusion with Russia, and the other two sections, which were heavily redacted, um, could possibly, one could possibly be obstruction of justice based on what we could read. And the third is an unknown, quote, criminal investigation. Yum. So what was the reaction on Tuesday? Rudy Giuliani told NBC News that he is not concerned about Flynn, saying, quote, if he had any information to share with Mueller that hurt the president, you would know it by now, adding they don't have bupkits. We will see, Rudy, because you're such a such an honest broker of these things. On Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported a federal grand jury in Virginia has sought more information on efforts overseen by Michael Flynn's private company, Flynn Intel Group, to discredit a U.S.-based Turkish cleric. Now, we talked about that cleric two weeks ago. Trump, and this is totally not normal, has been seeking out ways to deport him um, and has gone through great lengths in order to make the the leader Erdogan, his fellow dictator over in Turkey, happy uh, and then get Erdogan off of the Saudis back. So that happened a couple of weeks ago. But again, the grand jury in Virginia is seeking information. Federal prosecutors have also asked for information on several people involved in the project, including Ekim Elptikan, excuse my pronunciation, the Turkish businessman who financed it. He claimed that the Turkish government is not involved. Okay, now we're going to do a separate section because we know how concerned the Republicans have been with voter fraud and not normal things. So I'm going to talk about some really strange things that happened this week as we're set to shift power and the Republicans are leaving power, not only in the House, but also in a couple of key states, two being Wisconsin and Michigan. And again, this could be a coincidence. We don't know. But Trump won, quote, won by 77,000 votes. And there were two states that he won. Michigan, he won by 10,000 votes out of millions. And Wisconsin by about twice that. So it's just strange to me. I don't have the direct connection yet, but I just want to kind of point that out. It's like, hmm, strange. Light bulb goes off. Um, that on Monday, th- these are the two states that really are at the forefront of this. Uh, on Monday, in a rare lame duck session, Wisconsin Republicans moved ahead with a bill to move the 2020 presidential p- 
primary date, costing the state millions to benefit a conservative state Supreme Court judge. Okay, so they did that. Also, with an incoming Democratic governor in Wisconsin, the proposal would also shift power to the GOP-controlled legislature. Protesters banged on Capitol doors and chanted, respect our votes and shame. That's all on Monday. A spokesperson, like, don't, you're not going to really do this, right? <laughs> a spokesperson for the Democratic Governors Association called the GOP banana republic dictators and said they are ignoring the will of the people. A top GOP legislator said they don't trust the incoming Democratic governor. Meanwhile, in Michigan, where Democrats won governor, attorney general, and secretary of state, GOP lawmakers introduced measures that would water down authority on campaign finance authority and other legal matters. That was all Monday. On Tuesday, the Wisconsin Senate approved 81 of outgoing GOP Governor Scott Walker's appointees for membership on boards, authorities, and councils. Walker also appointed a judge and two district attorneys on the way out. And then again, people weren't sure this would happen, but on Wednesday, Wisconsin's Republican-controlled legislator passed legislation which consolidates power in the GOP-led legislature at the expense of the incoming governor and attorney generals, both of whom are Democrats. Among other things, the legislation erodes the ability of the governor to enact laws and requires the legislature to approve whether the state can pull out of federal lawsuits, like the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Hours later, Republicans who control Michigan's legislature stripped campaign finance oversight from the incoming Secretary of State and moved to give the GOP-led legislature additional powers. Okay, this is just so not normal, folks. <laughs> but not to be outdone by Michigan and Wisconsin. We talked last week about North Carolina and that the Board of Election, the Bipartisan Board of Election, twice had not certified their results because of voting irregularities. This week, we got more information. The Charlotte Observer reported Leslie McCray Dallas who worked for Republican Mark Harris's campaign in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District, is at the center of voter fraud investigation. Dallas has a criminal record, how perfect, including felony fraud. The election board subpoenaed Harris's campaign Monday and has collected information that high-level campaign officials may have been aware of Dallas's activities. The probe is focused in on irregularities in mail-in ballots, mostly from Bladen County, where an unusually high percentage of Black and Native American, 36% and 55% respectively, ballots were not returned, versus only 18% of white ballots. And I'm sure that's just a coincidence. On Tuesday in North Carolina, and by the way, this race was decided by 905 votes. Okay. On Tuesday, a North Carolina woman admitted to harvesting ballots for Harris. She was paid $75 to $100 a week and gave the ballots to Dallas. It is illegal in North Carolina for a third party to turn in absentee ballots. On Thursday, Democrat Dan McCready, who conceded the day after election, withdrew his concessions. Harris said Wednesday he would back a new election if potential voter fraud altered the results. The Charlotte Observer called for a new election. 
However, after past unsubstantiated accusations of voter fraud by Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, Chris Kobach, and other national Republicans, they were all silent. HuffPost reported incoming House Oversight Committee Chair Republic, uh, Rep. Elijah Cummings wants to call Brian Kemp to testify before Congress about allegations of voter suppression to help his campaign. So cannot wait for accountability come January. An analysis by Forbes, speaking of fraud, revealed that Trump shifted $1.1 million of campaign donor money meant for his 2020 re-election into his business by continuing to charge his campaign for hotels, food, and rent. Great gig if you got it. Politico reported an email accounts of four senior aides at the National Republican Congressional Committee were surveilled for several months. The intrusion was detected in April 2018 and reported to the FBI. However, the NRCC didn't even inform their own parties. <laughs> Senior Republican officials were not informed of the hack. And when the NRCC explained why, they said they were conducting their own investigation. And this is really odd. They said they feared that revealing the hack would compromise efforts to find the culprit. So you don't tell Paul Ryan and others, you know, Mitch McConnell or Republican leaders, because it would compromise your efforts to find the culprit. Strange. Okay. Now I want to talk about what's happening in the regime. All what fun stuff the regime is doing this week. Well, remember the, one of the first acts of FCC chair, Chairman Pai, was to attack net neutrality. That was the whole reason I put the first 52 weeks in a book, because that information was either going to disappear or become less accessible. Well, on Monday, we learned in a memo published by the FCC, on the FCC website by the chair, that half a million comments on net neutrality were submitted from Russian email addresses. Oh, what a shock. Pay had earlier denied Russian involvement. The memo also indicated that over half of almost 22 million comments came from phony, temporary, or duplicate email addresses, and reportedly only 17.4% of the comments were unique. Pai also rejected two Freedom of Information Act requests filed by the New York Times and BuzzFeed, seeking IP addresses and server logs associated with public comments. So while he's admitting to half a million being associated with Russia, who knows what the truth is? Up until Monday, the answer was zero. Now we're at half a million. Keep an eye on that story. On Tuesday, more than 400 former Justice Department officials and attorneys serving both parties said in a letter they are, quote, disturbed by Trump's appointment of Matthew Whitaker as acting attorney general. On Tuesday, Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee expressed concern in a letter to the Department of Justice about Whitaker's financial disclosure disclosure forms, which were only recently certified as true by ethics officials. Whitaker has also not confirmed, this is not normal, not confirmed whether he has initiated an ethics review of possible conflicts. Now, four weeks after his appointment. That was four weeks ago. It feels like four years ago, but the midterms were four weeks ago. The Department of Justice, also not normal, declined to discuss recusal issues. 
On Tuesday, Defense Secretary Mattis approved an extension of active duty troops on the U.S.-Mexican border through January 31st, so they won't be home for Christmas. The Pentagon estimates the cost of the deployment through December 15th is already $72 million. Last week in our episode, we talked about all the troops being sent home, but now apparently they have changed their minds. On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported that under Acting Director Mick Mulvaney, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, again, the first word of that is consumer, publicly announced enforcement actions by the Bureau have dropped 75% under Mulvaney. In the past year, at least 129 employees have left. Mulvaney appointed staffers with no relevant expertise to replace them who previously worked in the financial sector or in positions against the Bureau and paid these staffers up to $259,000. On Thursday, the Senate voted 50-49 along party lines to confirm Trump nominee Kathleen Kraninger to lead the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She has no relevant experience and is expected to continue a business-friendly approach. Note the word consumer. Trade group, a, a trade group of banks known as Consumer Bankers Association, whose members include Bank of America and Wells Fargo, celebrated her confirmation as she becomes one of the country's most powerful banking regulators and will now not hold them accountable. What else happened in the regime this week? Well, on Monday, Larry Kudlow, director of the National Economic Council, called for the end of Obama-era subsidies for electric vehicle purchases, which were created by Congress without specifying, this is Kudlow, how he would do this. Because again, it was under Obama, but it was done by Congress. But these people aren't into those little semantics, like how they're actually going to do things. They just want to undo everything from Obama's legacy and also our environment. And then on Wednesday, we talked about the report a couple of weeks ago that was given the Friday after Thanksgiving, the shocking report of how bad things are with climate change. On Wednesday, nations assembled in Poland for climate talks. Reports show carbon, global carbon emissions reached a record in 2018, an estimated growth of 2.7%. The biggest growth in emissions came from India, 6%, China, 5%, and the U.S., 2.5%, while emissions actually dropped in the European Union by about 1%. See, this is possible. The United Nations Secretary General said, quote, we are in deep trouble. just want to stick a bookmark. We're going to get back to this item that emissions in the U.S. of carbon dioxide grew 2.5%. Just remember that. We're going to get back to that with Trump at the end of the week. On Thursday, because we're not done with the environment, Trump's EPA proposed rolling back a major Obama-era climate rule, loosening restrictions on future coal power plants. And again, like with Michelle Obama's lunch program, why? Coal advocates cheered, and don't forget, Trump's acting EPA director is a coal lobbyist, Although the industry has not been adding capacity in years because of lack of business. So they just rolled this back for the heck of it. On Thursday, the Trump regime said it would roll back Obama-era protections of the habitat of endangered sage grouse birds in a move to free up 9 million acres of land for oil and gas drilling. So that was this week in the regime. 
Now I want to talk about our economy. This was a week where some really bad stuff happened, including our stock market. Um, one day it wasn't open on Wednesday because of George W. H.W.'s um, funeral. But on the days it was open, on Tuesday it went down 800 points. On Thursday when it reopened, it had gone down similarly and then bounced back. And then Friday was down over 500 points. All the gains made in 2018 have now been wiped away. So I just want to talk about what happened this week. We came on Sunday, Trump had been bragging of reaching a trade truce with China at the G20 summit, claiming China will, quote, immediately begin buying more American agriculture products and drop its 40% tariffs on American cars. But remember what happened after the North Korea summit when Trump came out with all these versions of what happened and then we didn't hear the same versions from Kim Jong-un? Well, this is what happens when you have someone who shoots from the hip and doesn't really understand the truth or how these things work. And one other story that I just want to bookmark and mention, because I think we're going to be coming back to it in the coming weeks as relates to U.S.-China relations. Meng Wanzhou, who's the chief financial officer and daughter of the founder of a Chinese tech giant called Hangwu, was arrested in Canada and extradited to the U.S. to stand trial for violating sanctions against selling products to Iran. I heard a pundit compare it to the concept of Ivanka was extradited while visiting China. So let's keep an eye on the story as it develops. On Tuesday, amid President Yi's silence to Trump's supposed immediately being being buying American agriculture products, um, Trump tweeted, quote, I am a tariff man saying he was prepared to impose higher levies if he did not live up to the arrangement Trump claims they reached. Tariff man, we had some fun with that. In a break from the usual protocol, where have you heard me say that before? For top level trade talks, the US and China did not release a joint statement on the talk that took place on Saturday at the G20, instead issuing two different readouts of what occurred, the US and and China. On Tuesday, the Dow tumbled, we said 800 points, and bond yields plummeted as investors' doubts of the U.S. trade truce uh, grew. On Tuesday evening, Trump tweeted, it's it's all going to be okay because Trump's tweeting, quote, we are either going to have a, cap letters, real deal with China or no deal at all, claiming we will reach a deal, quote, either now or in the future, adding Quote, China does not want tariffs, exclamation point. Okay, so and then Wednesday came, the market was closed. Trump, it went down 800 points Tuesday, Wednesday. Trump tried to assure the markets, tweeting, not to sound naive or anything. This is actually what he tweeted, not to sound naive or anything. But I believe President Yi meant every word of what he said. On Wednesday, during the funeral for George H.W. Bush, observers noted the feel of nostalgia for a bygone era of mutual respect and admiration of leaders pre-Trump. At the request of the Bush family, Trump was invited. We talked about the awkwardness in the photo with this week as Trump entered sitting next to the Obamas and Clintons. In addition to that, Trump sat with his arms crossed and did not recite the Apostles' Creed or sing hymns. The New York Times reported Trump was miffed by so many ceremonial events not related to him, but proud of himself for remaining civil. 
this is where we are, folks. On Wednesday, the Daily Beast reported that when aides and advisors tried to get Trump to tackle the growing budget deficit in April 2017, which was projected to continue to grow, he said, quote, yeah, but I won't be here. On Wednesday, General Motors CEO Mary Barra said she will keep a, quote, open mind about closing an Ohio plant, acknowledging the anger publicly expressed by Trump and two Ohio senators. Again, I just to point out, like not that we want any company to close plants and people to lose their jobs, absolutely not. But this is so not normal for a head of state to be bullying companies um, and trying to get them to change their behavior by bullying them. On Thursday, the Commerce Department announced the US trade deficit hit a 10-year high. Yay, tariff man. Increasing 1.7% to $55.5 billion, the highest level since October 2008, before Obama took office. On Thursday, the stock market plummeted again on fears over U.S.-China relations and the global economy. It tumbled again Friday. We talked about that wiping out all the gains. So tumultuous week. And again, as somebody who worked on Wall Street for 20 years and traded the debt of bankrupt companies... And that's how I knew Trump, because he bankrupt a lot of companies. This guy does not know anything about the economy. And our economy is slowing. Jobs numbers came out Friday. The economy is slowing. He's hurt the economy with tariffs and our huge and growing deficit, which he doesn't care about. Yeah, but I won't be here. Um, but our economy is in trouble. Other stories. On Tuesday, CIA Director Gina Haspel briefed a group of Senate leaders on the agency's conclusion on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Senators from both parties said it was clear that the Saudi crown prince was behind it. Leading Democrats called for a full Senate briefing by Haspel. It was unclear what, if any, actions senators would take because they're Putin, excuse me, not Putin, they're Trump puppets. In week 107, Mike Pompeo and Mathis had echoed Trump's reluctance to blame the crown prince. On Wednesday, the Washington Post reported that within months of the 2016 election, Saudi-founded lobbyists booked 500 rooms at the Trump Hotel DC. What a surprise. Gee, who would have seen that coming? Spending more than 270,000 to house six groups of visiting veterans. I just want to note also in that story, Originally, it was booked somewhere else, but when Trump took office, they threw you know, a little over a quarter million dollars his way and moved to his hotel. Those Saudis knew how to play him, and everybody knows how to play him. On Wednesday, Republican Senator Jeff Flake, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, stood by his commitment to not vote to advance Trump's judicial nominees until the bill to protect Mueller comes to the Senate floor for a vote. Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee said in January they plan to refer transcripts to Mueller's team of interviews with Kushner, Donald Jr., Stone, Corey Lewandowski, Ronna Graff, that's Trump's secretary, Hope Hicks, and his bodyguard, Keith Schiller, to be reviewed for possible falsehoods. Okay, so we talked in the beginning of the week uh, and, and last week about Cohen cooperating, Flynn cooperating. So now that we're getting a little bit of taste of what they knew and what is public, all these other folks who testified to Congress, potentially could have lied to Congress, which is a crime. Okay, so now we're getting back to Russia. 
On Wednesday, the Daily Beast reported on a target letter sent to Paul Erickson, a longtime Republican operative who was Maria Bettina's boyfriend from federal investigators saying they may bring charges. Remember, Bettina over the summer was arrested for being a Russian spy. The letter was sent in September by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington. It says investigators are considering charging him under Section 951, the law barring people from secretly acting as agents of foreign governments. On Thursday, Mother Jones reported the Trump campaign and the National Rifle Association used intertwined consultants to spearhead TV ad buys at the height of the 2016 election. Both the NRA and the Trump campaign's ad buys were authorized by the same person, National Media Chief Financial Officer John Farrell. Experts say the arrangement appears to violate campaign finance laws. Okay, so just stepping back here, the NRA spent $30 million on Trump and other monies, grassroots money as well, but $30 million in donations, dark money, versus $12 million they had given to Romney because Trump is so much better on guns. Boutina, you know, we've talked about in past weeks, before the June 9th meeting, had met up with Donald Jr. at an NRA dinner. There's allegations that Russian money came in through the NRA to Trump. So let's keep you know, an eye. This is an important storyline. Whenever I see NRA, I'm like, ding, 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 ding. On Thursday, CNN reported that prosecutors and defense attorneys for Maria Butina may be near a plea deal. Oh, yum. The judge canceled an upcoming hearing and said subpoenas planned for American University, where she was a student, may be withdrawn. I'm sure she's got some good stuff to tell. On Thursday, Trump cited his 50% approval at Rasmussen and blamed Mueller for it not being higher, tweeting, quote, without the phony Russia witch hunt, it would be 75%, adding, quote, it's called presidential harassment. On Thursday, The Atlantic reported Trump's White House has no plan for how to counter the Mueller report. Instead, the regime is winging it with no strategy in place for responding other than expecting Twitter spree. Aides say Trump would likely ignore a plan anyway, so crafting one is futile. Former officials also noted the difficulty in coming up with a strategy when Trump has not been forthright about what happened. (laughs) On Thursday, CNN reported in the days after Comey fired, excuse me, after Trump fired Comey, then-acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe opened an obstruction of justice investigation before special counsel Robert Mueller was appointed. McCabe and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein viewed Trump as a leader who needed to be reined in. An obstruction probe was previously considered, but it didn't start until Trump fired Comey on May 9, 2017. The probe included the Comey firing and the Oval Office conversation where Trump asked Comey to drop the investigation of Flynn. Sources say the FBI would only open an investigation if a crime was suspected. And this is just like an odd occurrence. On Thursday, shortly before 10 p.m., CNN's New York offices received a phoned-in bomb threat. Remember, that happened a few weeks ago, too, from a Trump fan. Phoned-in bomb threat indicating there were five bombs in the building. 
The New York Police Department said they responded to a call from CNN reporting the threat at 10.08 p.m. The building was evacuated, and shortly after the show, which was Don Lemon's show at that time, was broadcast from the street. Employees eventually returned before midnight. And this is just an eerie coincidence. On Thursday at the same time at 10.08 p.m., Trump tweeted, all in cap letters, fake news, the enemy of the people, just randomly same time that there happened to be a bomb scare at CNN, his favorite. On Thursday, The Guardian reported that Mueller's team has interviewed Trump's advisor in London, Ted Malik. We talked about him last week. About his frequent appearances on RT, considered by U.S. intelligence to be Russian propaganda. Malik was contacted by Jerome Corsi on August 2nd, 2016 at Stone's behest. We talked about that last week to visit Julian Assange and get an update on email releases. On that day, Assange appeared on RT on August 2nd and said he would release additional emails. So it could all be a coincidence. All these things could be a coincidence. On Fridays, in Friday morning was fun for Trump. <laughs> he sent a total of seven angry morning tweets. Uh, cap some of them here. You've heard them all before. <laughs> It's like putting on a record and rewind, rewind, rewind. Trump attacked Mueller and his team, accusing them of conflicts of interest, saying, quote, Robert Mueller and leaking, lying James Comey are best friends. Trump also claimed prosecutors have, quote, wrongly destroyed people's lives, citing Andrew Wiseman's horrible and vicious prosecutorial past. And then the woman who he said he couldn't remember her name, he said this in a tweet. It's like it's coming out of his brain, just straight to the keyboard. And the woman whose name he can't remember, who uh, uh, is in the prosecutor in the Corsi case. Trump also mentioned Rosenstein, who he said is conflicted along with Bruce Orr and his lovely wife, Molly, Comey, Brennan, Clapper, and all, and many fired people of the FBI. Trump also responded to the Atlantic story, which said he had no plan, tweeting, quote, we will be doing a major counter report to the Mueller probe, adding this should never again be allowed to happen to a future president. On Friday, Comey testified behind, testified behind closed doors to the House Intelligence Committee and exasperated Comey told reporters he had been aggressively questioned about Hillary Clinton's email investigation two years ago. Comey had fought the congressional subpoena in court, pushing for a public hearing. Republicans who will have a House majority in just two weeks, excuse me, Republicans who will lose a House majority in just two weeks, will call back Comey on December 17th. Politico reported amid slow motion shakeups, and this is another theme as we closed out the week, there was Russia happening and then there was just like, okay, who are we gonna fire and hire this week or mostly fire? Politico reported amid slow motion shakeups, the regime is in a holding pattern. Trump has offered almost nothing in the way of a legislative vision for 2019 beyond border security and a new trade deal with the mysterious trade deal with China that doesn't exist. Of the 706 key roles in the executive branch, which require Senate confirmation, we're now two years in, just 54% of those have a confirmed nominee, and 125 positions, which is almost one in five, have not yet had a nominee named. On Thursday, in his first speech since being fired as Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson said Trump directed him to do things that were illegal. 
He had to keep telling him, what you're telling me to do is not legal. He also said he learned about his firing through Trump's tweet congratulating Pompeo. These people are all class. On Friday, not to be outdone by Tillerson, Trump responded tweeting, quote, Pompeo is doing a great job, but Tillerson, quote, didn't have the mental capacity needed and was, quote, dumb as a rock and, quote, lazy as hell, adding, quote, I couldn't get rid of him fast enough. On Friday, CNN reported Chief of Staff John Kelly is expected to resign in coming days. Although in the summer, Trump had asked Kelly to stay for two more years. The two are no longer on speaking terms. Fun. On Friday, CNN reported Mueller's team has questioned Kelly on his recollection of an episode that took place after new reporting emerged that Trump had tried to fire Mueller. On Friday... The shakeup continues. Trump appointed former Fox News anchor Heather Newart uh, as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. She has little experience in government or foreign policy before joining the State Department in April 2017. She was like a trainee when she was college age. That's her government experience. So she's totally ready to be the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Uh, As the State Department spokesperson, Newart has made numerous missteps, including citing D-Day as the height of U.S.-German relations. At Fox News, she spread conspiracy theories and shared xenophobic storylines, so she'll be a great ad. On Friday, also via Twitter, Trump announced a nomination of William Barr, who served as Attorney General for George H.W. Bush, to become his Attorney General. Barr supports a strong vision of executive powers. Gee, what a surprise. He has also criticized aspects of the Russian investigation, saying Mueller hired too many prosecutors who had donated to Democratic campaigns. Barr has also defended Trump, calling for new criminal investigations into Hillary Clinton. Nope, good. Saying he saw more basis for investigating Uranium One than the alleged conspiracy between Trump's associates and Russia. So this is the guy they're putting forward for attorney general. Where do they find these people? (laughs) Crazy land. On Saturday, Trump said Kelly will leave the White House by the end of the year. And at this point, he said, well, Nick Ayers is the leading candidate to become chief of staff and replace Kelly. Um, I'm cheating a little because it didn't come out until after this week was over, but Nick Ayers has already said no. On Friday, a new NPR PBS Marist poll found overall 54% of Americans believe the Mueller probe is fair versus 33% who say it is a witch hunt. 13% are unsure. Only Republicans are against Mueller. Uh, with 77% of Republicans saying it's a witch hunt. Democrats, 82% of Democrats and 55% of independents say the probe is fair. On Friday, Giuliani told CNN that Mueller's team believes Manafort is lying to them about Trump, although he said he was not sure the information would show up in the special counsel's filing today. And then Friday, five o'clock, Yeah, that's so much for my social life. Big news broke. Okay, so I I annotated best I could. There were two filings. uh, Well, actually, more than two filings, but two related to Michael Cohen and one related to Manafort. On Friday, the Southern District of New York 
and the special counsel, Robert Mueller, filed new separate court papers ahead of next Wednesday's sentencing of Michael Cohen. The documents portrayed Cohen as a criminal who deserves little sympathy or mercy. Just compare that. I mentioned at the beginning of the week, Michael Flynn, they asked for no prison time. Compare that to Cohen, who they said deserves no sympathy or mercy and lied and held back information from the FBI in initial interviews. The document said he should be sentenced to, quote, substantial prison time. The document said Cohen successfully convinced numerous major corporations to retain him as a consultant by promising access to the Trump regime. Gee, that's what Paul Manafort did too. And profited by more than $4 million. The Southern District of New York memo said, quote, and this is beautifully written and says it all, quote, while many Americans who desired a particular outcome to the election knocked on doors, toiled at phone banks, or found any number of other legal ways to make their voice heard, Cohen sought to influence the election from the shadows. Wow. The Southern District Memo also said, Individual One, Trump's new nickname other than Tariff Man, Individual One was directly involved in efforts to buy the silence of two women, intended to influence the campaign and thereby constituted violations of campaign finance law, ding, 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 a felony. Mueller's memo revealed a previously unknown November 2015 contact between Cohen and a, quote, trusted person in the Russia Federation offering the campaign, quote, political synergy and, quote, synergy on a government level. Okay, so just in context there, Trump declared he would run in June 2015. In November 2015, Cohen was in touch with a trusted person in the Russian government. Mueller's memo described planning a meeting between Trump and Putin and that Cohen discussed this with Trump prior to suggesting it in a September 2015 radio interview as Putin was about to visit New York City. What? You've got that? Sure, come on in. Mueller's memo also cited Cohen's lies to Congress, quote, obscured the fact that the Moscow project was lucrative business opportunity that sought and likely required the assistance of the Russian government. The memo continued, hundreds of millions of dollars of Russian sources in licensing fees and other revenues <clears throat> uh, would come from that, that arrangement with Trump Tower Moscow. Mueller's memo said Cohen also provided relevant information about contacts with people connected to the White House between 2017 and 2018, the first indication of his involvement with post-election matters. Okay, so that was Cohen. Also Friday, in a heavily redacted document, Mueller's team said Manafort lied about five major issues after agreeing to cooperate with prosecutors including his, quote, contact with administration officials. Again, remember in the beginning of the podcast when I said keep an eye on what the New York Times was reporting on Mueller's attempt, excuse me, Manafort's attempt to drum up business by saying he had contacts in the Trump regime? Turns out that was true. The document revealed also that Manafort saying he had no contacts with the Trump administration post-inauguration. He was in contact in 2018, even after being indicted in late 2017. He remained in contact with the Trump regime. 
The document cited evidence of undisclosed electronic communications with Konstantin Kimliak, who Mueller has said has ties to the Russia GMU, the, the unit that interfered in our election, as well as travel records and meetings. The filing said Manafort has met with Mueller's team 12 times, and this is interesting, four of those meetings prosecutors from outside the special counsel attended. Okay, so what is that about? Question mark. He also testified before a Mueller grand jury twice. The special counsel also said Manafort lied about an $125,000 wire transfer and lied in connection with an investigation separate from the Mueller probe. There's that separate investigation again. We don't know what that is. Manafort will be sentenced in March. Shortly after the documents were released, Trump tweeted, quote, totally clear as a president. Thank you. Other than, yeah, the felony and the collusion with Russia, you're totally clear. Sarah Sanders added the Cohen filings, quote, tell us nothing of value that wasn't already known. On Saturday morning, Trump woke up and tweeted in all cap letters again, after two years and millions of page, excuse me, and millions of pages of documents and a cost of over 30 million, no collusion. Okay. Later that morning, Trump quoted Fox News commentator Geraldo Rivera tweeting, quote, this is collusion illusion and there's no smoking gun here. After millions have been spent, we have no Russia collusion. Again, no idea what he's talking about. Trump also tweeted, quote, time for the witch hunt to end, and in all capital letters, exclamation point. So that was Friday morning. Uh, on Friday, also a, um, excuse me, Saturday morning. On Friday, a panel of Trump's favorite, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, found in a two-to-one ruling, they denied the Trump regime's request to enforce a ban on asylum for any immigrants who illegally cross the U.S.-Mexico border. The panel rebuked Trump, saying the regime's ban is inconsistent with an existing U.S. law, and said, this is classic, quote, just as we may not, as we are often reminded, legislate from the bench, neither may, neither may the executive legislate from the Oval Office. Wow. On Saturday, the fourth weekend of, and I, want, I sort of want to take out to a global basis some of the stuff that's happening in the U.S. at our border. On Saturday, the fourth weekend of anti-government protests turned violent in Paris as police cracked down on thousands of, quote, well, yellow vests is what they're known as, protesting a planned increase in fuel tax and Macron's economic policies. Okay, so that's what they're protesting. That was in the news this week. On Saturday morning, however, Trump tweeted erroneously blaming the riots on climate change, the climate change agreement, saying, quote, people do not want to pay large sums of money in order to protect the environment. Trump later tweeted, quote, maybe it's time to end the ridiculous and extremely expensive Paris agreement, falsely claiming the U.S. was, quote, the only major country where emissions went down last year. Remember, we talked about that meeting Wednesday. U.S. emissions went up 2.5%. Emissions out of Europe actually went down. The State Department told a Senate subcommittee China has indefinitely detained at least 800,000 Muslim minorities in internment camps, forcing them to renounce Islam and embrace the Chinese Communist Party. 
Just like last week with Russia and Ukraine, this is another example of the loss of U.S. moral authority. There's nobody policing any of this stuff. And, you know, that was formerly a role that something like the U.S. would speak out on, but no. Um, also, came out this week, the New York Times reported Denmark's immigration minister announced that roughly 100 unwanted migrants who have been convicted of crimes but cannot be returned to their homeland will be housed in a tiny, hard-to-reach island. Like much of Europe, Denmark has a surge in migration in 2015 and 2016, prompting a populist nativist backlash. Advocates say they are monitoring for possible violation of Denmark's international obligations. So our loss of global leadership, that is in many ways being assumed by Germany. Maybe people argue that Merkel has become the new leader of the free world. And we're just left here to be embarrassed day by day uh, by our leader who can't seem to get it together. So folks, important happenings this week. Friday was December 7th. As I opened up, that's also Pearl Harbor Day, but I think also will be remembered for an important day and Trump being essentially, you know, in, um, accused of a felony of silencing two women to impact our election. Two of those stories have to do with our election, silencing women to impact the election in the Southern District of New York, and also what's unfolding with Russian collusion and this property, the Trump Tower of Moscow, being worth hundreds of millions of dollars to Trump. And suddenly the money being funneled and, and Russia helping Trump with the election. So as we leave episode 26, I open up or I leave you with a thought that we opened up the weekly list with, was this a fair election? Uh, was there collusion and conspiracy to throw our election with Russia's help? Hopefully we're going to know a lot more this week. Hopefully, you know, we have our popcorn and our champagne ready and we're ready for some indictments in the Mueller probe. So hang in there until next week. Have a great one. If you've watched this, please share on, on Facebook and Twitter, the Weekly List Podcast. Don't forget to leave a rating and a, um, if you like it, a comment. So thank you and we'll, we'll talk soon.